Our focus this morning is on the issues of life and death. Life and death, two themes which are always relevant to the human condition, but even more so today in the midst of a pandemic where so many Americans are struggling to come to grips with how to navigate both of those things. First of all, what if I catch COVID and I have to face real suffering and possibly even death? And second, how do I live under the shadow of that possibility? We're struggling with that. Suddenly, death is on everybody's mind, and as a correlating principle, we're now having to figure out what do we really believe about living? And until COVID struck early last year, Americans weren't even having that conversation. We didn't think much about it, and now here it is in our faces every single day. And think about that. As Christians, do we not have an amazing opportunity with all of the anxiety in our culture to step into those conversations and bring gospel truth? And that's something that maybe the church isn't being as aware as they should be right now, is that as our culture circles in trying to figure out what's happening with both life and death, we have amazing opportunities. Now, the Bible talks about man's natural fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read this about one of the purposes of the cross. It says, through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil... And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now, that rings more true than usual to us today, right? The slavery to fear. We're seeing it all around us. Prior to 2020, we may have just laughed that off, but look around today. There is some alarming things happening in our culture related to COVID. Millions of people are still absolutely paralyzed by fear. Absolutely paralyzed, voluntarily locked in their homes, petrified of walking past other human beings in the store, wearing their masks outside alone, wearing masks in their car alone. And now we're seeing the birth of, the only way I can describe it is a whole new religion. It's worship of the vaccine, where get the jab and it'll give you the peace that you've been searching for. That's what the new priests of this religion are telling us. The Huffington Post is not something I often read, but I was doing some research this week, and back in 2015, they published a very interesting article called Positive Ways to Overcome Your Fear of Death. And I thought I'd share it with you this morning for this reason, because it's good for us as believers to know what people think out there. If that's our harvest field, we ought to know what people think about death and what they think about how death should be prepared for. So let me, let me give you their top five principles that they came up with in this article. Number one, they said, take control of your life. Oh, we love control. Take control of your life. Here's what they wrote. Spend quality time with the people you enjoy being around. Good. I mean, there's, some, there's actually some really good practical principles in here and also some really foolish things, and we should be able to discern the difference. They went on, try new things, challenge yourself. Most of all, stay active and engaged with positive activities. Right? That is one of the great idols of the culture, right? positive thinking. Don't keep going to a job that is deeply dissatisfying, okay? or stay in a relationship that makes you unhappy. You have many years to enjoy everything that life has to offer. You have many years, it says. That's presumptive, right? The fear of death is often the fear of not living on your own terms, they write. You deserve to see your dreams come true. That word deserve is really dangerous, isn't it? You deserve it. 
The more you embrace life, the less frightened you will feel about giving it up when the time comes, is what they write. Here's the second principle they had. Learn to accept that death is natural. Like the child being born, we have no choice but to yield ourselves to the unknown. I guess, I don't know if that's supposed to bring peace, but to the unknown, it says. You can choose to view your body and your contribution to this world as an honor. We've had the privilege of living, so let's be grateful and accept death when it comes. Grateful to who? To be grateful, there needs to be an object to which you're, you're thankful for, right? Number three, read the available literature and self-help guides about death. <laughs> Religious leaders, philosophers, and mystics have built a magnificent library on the subject of the afterlife. Their works may not tell you with certainty what happens after you die. No certainty. But they may help you to tackle the equally important question of, of how we should prepare for the afterlife. Yeah, we should prepare for it. I, I agree with that. Number four, they said, adopt rituals and explore spirituality. Whether you're religious or not, rituals are important for creating a sense of meaning in life. Meaning comes from rituals, they say. A ritual can be as simple as taking a walk every afternoon or lighting a candle each morning. You can recognize a seasonal change or something emotional or physical happening in your life. The choice is completely yours. And the last, focus on living well. We agree with that, right? There's so many simple things that you can do to live a healthier and more positive life. Explore your passions. Write a bucket list with all the amazing things that you want to do before you die. If you're busy living, you won't have time to worry about dying. So that's, that's just understand that's what is out there right now. And all of that has been amplified now by COVID, hasn't it? The reality is, is in our culture, uh, death is sort of hidden from us. We do everything we can to sort of hide it, right? So that we can cope with it. So we can just be okay with the fact that a lot of people die each and every day. Most people die out of sight, don't they? In hospitals. Unless you choose to go to a hospital, there's a good chance you're not going to see all the death taking place. In America, we're also not good at understanding statistics when it comes to death. We are terrible about this. In spite of the fact that death from COVID happens in less than 2% of all cases, I have seen reports legitimate reports that say that there are, there are many, many people in this country who, because of very poor reporting on this subject, actually believe that your, your chances of surviving COVID are like 50-50. There's a lot of people in this country that are so misinformed that they believe it's a, it's a coin flip as to whether you survive COVID or not. And while COVID is not a hoax, and we shouldn't just brush it off. And by the way, Christians, we don't do ourselves any good in our harvest field when we make fun of it because people have family members and friends who have died. So we got to be really careful. Don't use that word hoax. Don't minimize the impact that it's had on our culture. But we should realize that there are also death rates for other viruses, for the flu, for hepatitis, for so many other things out there. But those things aren't in our face every day, are they? We don't have a daily tracker to show us how many people are dying from other types of virus. We also worry much, much too much about the unlikely forms of death and not, a mu not as much as we should about the ones that really matter. We just don't have a good framework for this. For example, suicide is more common than death by car accident. That's something we should pay attention to. For the average person in America, you are much more likely to die in an accidental fall than you are being murdered by some random bad guy. 
but we don't take those things into consideration. Most, most people, of course, die because they're old, because their bodies are simply giving out. Heart disease and cancer dominate the field by a mile when it comes to causes of death. In L.A. County, where we live, there are around 200 deaths every single day. 200 a day, and that means that between 16 and 17 people in our county, where we live, will die during this worship service this morning. Those are the realities. And friends, death is a real fact of life, isn't it? And how we view death and how we view living in the valley of the shadow of death has everything to do with our view of what is true about the meaning of life itself. And if we have no answers, no sure answer for why death happens and what comes next, what comes in the afterlife, when we're faced with a situation like we are today in a pandemic, we are going to begin to fear death. We are going to be anxious about death. And that's not what God's called us to. So grab your Bibles. Let's see what God has to say about this. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We are once again back in the temple courts and we are looking at this ongoing debate between Jesus and this crowd of Jews, who, which as I've said before includes some of the powerful religious leaders of Jerusalem. And each week that we have looked at a piece of this back and forth, things have gotten more hostile each time, haven't they? Catch this now. This one scene, this one scene in the temple courts goes all the way back to chapter 7, verse 14. And I did the numbers on this. We're almost 90 verses into this one particular scene that John records for us. Eight sermons. Enough already, Jeff, right? Eight sermons. This will be the ninth sermon. And next week when we finish it, ten sermons just on this back and forth. So this is an important part of John's gospel. Now we're covering verses 48 to 55 this morning, but let's back up to verse 44. We'll catch the flow of the argument. Remember, Jesus is talking to these Jews in the crowd here, and in verse 44 he says something quite shocking. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Wow, now those are some pretty hard truths, right? that come from Jesus here. You are not of God, so you cannot hear the truth. Your true spiritual father is the devil, and your desires line up with his. Ouch. Now, how's the crowd gonna react? Let's, let's look at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, so now it, we just crossed, crossed a whole nother line, right? It has gotten very, very nasty. You think we're not of God, they say? Well, we think you're a Samaritan, and we think you are demon-possessed. So this is a whole nother level of insult. And by the way, guys, this is typical. When someone is in the midst of a debate and things are not going well for them, this is a very typical tactic. They're feeling vulnerable and defensive, so in order to change the subject, they will launch a personal attack against their opponent. In the world of debating, we call it what? Ad hominem, right? It's a, it's a logical fallacy. Attacking the character, 
the motive or some attribute of the person you're debating rather than attacking the substance of the argument itself. And universally, it's recognized that when you do this, this is an admission that your point, your position is weak and that you're losing the argument. So it's not something you want to do. Spiritually, you see this happen when people get called out on their sin. When people are caught in sin and get called out on it, you will see this type of attack mode. Rather than just acknowledge the truth and repent, folks will go into defensive mode and they will lash out and make accusations against the person who's exposed their sin. If you've been in ministry for any amount of time, this has happened to you. It's happened to me many times. They will attack you instead of repenting. But by insulting Jesus in this way, the Jews have to know this, that the crowd is actually just proving his point about the devil being their true father because this type of personal attack, this type of insulting is a favorite weapon of the devil. He often stirs up his children to attack others using the cruelty of false accusations. So they're proving his point here. As I shared last Sunday, this type of attack is bound to happen to you and I today. And we should expect it. When we go out there into the world and serve as ambassadors for Christ, if we come with any sense of boldness, we should expect this type of reaction. It's not going to go as well as you think it will go in your head. (laughs) Don't be surprised by rejection. Don't be surprised by name-calling. Because human nature and the sinful human nature has not changed from the first century to today. So why would we expect a different reaction, right? Most people in their sin, do not want to hear about spiritual truth. And they will kick and they will fight back and they will use accusations against you if you touch the idols that are very close to their heart. And by the way, the opposite principle is true. If you're not bold in your faith, if you're not putting yourself out there and seeking out gospel conversations, if instead your goal in life is to sort of just blend in with the world, then you can expect smooth sailing because the world will embrace you as its own. So we have choices to make in this, don't we? Especially as we see the end drawing near. Each day we get closer to the end, we have choices to make. Are we going to be bold? Are we going to accept that type of rejection? Or are we going to try to just take the smoothest way possible? Those are the choices we have. Now let's look closer at these two insults that Jesus endures. In that context, calling somebody a Samaritan was the same thing as saying, you're not really Jewish. You're not fully Jewish. This was a charge of being both a religious heretic and an enemy in terms of nationalism. In terms of national identity, you're an enemy. Remember, we know from the writings of this period that when Jews traveled throughout the land of Israel, they would walk miles out of their way just to not contaminate their sandals with Samaritan dust. (laughs) This is the level of, of conflict and hatred between these people groups. So you're a Samaritan was simply the meanest thing they could think of in that moment to lash out with, a spiteful expression of their hatred for Jesus and all that he has been sharing in this dialogue that's been going on since chapter 7. Now, as awful as that is, the one about demon possession is much worse, isn't it? Much more black. Can you imagine the Son of God calling him demon-possessed? Why would they say that? Well, beyond the fact that they're just lashing out, they're just emotional, they're defensive, they're sort of losing the argument, so they're just going to say what they need to say, I think they're making this claim because of what they perceive as Jesus turning his back on their ethnic heritage and their religious privilege that they believe they have in Abraham. So in other words, you'd have to be demon-possessed as a Jew to make those claims. 
You'd have to be demon-possessed as a Jew to basically say anything contrary to their chosen status. So those in the crowd that day really do believe that Jesus is a heretic and a traitor. And of course, they want to throw right back in his face the claim that he just made about the devil being their father. No, you're the one who's led by a demon. It's like, we're going to have a battle of demonic claims here, right? You know, what is it? I know you are, but what am I? It's just like tit for tat type of thing. No, we're not the ones led by a devil. You are. And it's going to get worse. By the time we get to chapter 10, the religious leaders of Israel are going to be openly declaring that not only does Jesus have a demon, that he's, he's mentally insane. Matthew's going to tell us in chapter 12, the Pharisees tell people that Jesus does miracles not by the power of God, but he drives out demons by the power of the prince of demons. So it's going to get even more messy than this. The chippiness continues to grow, right? And the enemy is clearly at work here. He's using his children. Jesus just said that last week, right? These are his children. He's using his children as pawns in his feckless strategy to try to defeat God's Messiah. And it's going to get bumpier. So how's Jesus going to respond? How would you respond in this moment? Try to put yourselves in his sandals. You get called these names. How would you respond? Have you ever found yourself, I know I've done this before, found yourself in an argument over spiritual things and you're outnumbered? There's a whole bunch of people and they're all coming at you, right? You're outnumbered and you're being attacked. That is a really hard thing to endure, isn't it? It requires staying very calm in that moment. It requires not allowing your opponents to get you off track. Because that's often what will happen, right? They, they will throw names at you. They will take you off on rabbit trails. They want to get you off the track that you're trying to go on talking about gospel things. So it requires in those moments, as you're being attacked or being outnumbered, that you take a deep breath and you pray in your spirit and you lean into what God wants you to do in terms of your mission in that moment. It also requires having wisdom to know when this dialogue has become unproductive and just walking away. But this is hard stuff. Let's see what Jesus does. Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but, or on the contrary, I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks it, or there is one who seeks my glory, and he judges. Wow. It would have been so easy and so human if Jesus had reacted to the crowd in this moment in one of two ways. Number one, to return insult for insult, or number two, to just walk away. Just withdraw any hope from them, walk away in disgust. But instead, what does he do? He stays calm, he stays patient, even while he's being dishonored. Remember, this is the very Son of God who came to earth, who condescended to come to earth to seek and to save these very people who are insulting him. If anybody ever had the right to walk away in disgust, it's Jesus. But he doesn't. He endures their cheap shots. Here's how Peter would later describe Jesus in this moment. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ suffered for you, believer, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is the key for us when we're being attacked, not responding in anger, 
but entrusting ourselves to the Lord who judges righteously. He is our audience of one in that moment. It's not going to feel like it. You're being outnumbered. You're being attacked by people. But you still in that moment have an audience of one. He's the one we want to please in that moment. He's the one we serve. And he's the one who will one day reward us for any suffering that we endure for his name. Now notice that Jesus chose not to respond to the Samaritan charge. (laughs) It's almost like not even worth my time or energy. And sometimes that's the wise path to take, right? I'm not even going (laughs) to dignify that charge. But he does address the demon possession charge. And he does so in such a straightforward and truthful way. Not angry, not hostile, just factual. Essentially, here's what he says. Guys, let me tell you why that charge is false. Any man who's controlled by a demon would have as his spiritual father who? The devil. And he would show characteristics of his father, the devil. That means that if he were demon-possessed, he would be a liar, he would be full of pride, he would be trying to impress other men, he would be trying to seek honor and fame for himself. But Jesus has done the exact opposite, hasn't he? He's only spoken truth, and he said to the crowd, who convicts me of sin? Can anybody show evidence that I've been untruthful? And there was what? There was silence. So he had spoken only truth. And when challenged, not one person was able to bring that evidence. He had shown nothing but humility. I've said it before. Jesus was going through the land, not trying to build a big following. That was not his goal. He was not attempting to flatter those in power. That's what we do as humans, right? We flatter people in power because they might share their power. Jesus has done the opposite. He's made enemies of those in power by calling them out for sin. He's not been seeking honor or glory for himself every single time he has pointed back to his father, hasn't he? Every time. I speak only as my father tells me to speak. I do only what my father tells me to do. So how could he have a demon if he shows all the opposite characteristics of the devil? That's what's going on here. Look again at verse 49. So Jesus responds to the crowd. My mission is summed up in this one thing. I honor my father. I honor my father by delivering his message to men and women like yourselves. But by your disbelief and your insults, you now dishonor me. And by doing so, you dishonor Yahweh himself. And look at the warning there in verse 50. God will judge these things, he says. I don't seek my glory, Jesus says, but be advised, there is one who does seek my glory. And we have to understand that. The Father desires that people everywhere glorify the Son. So there is one who seeks my glory, and he will judge. So make no mistake, God desires that the Son be honored. Remember what God said? God highly exalted his Son, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That's what God desires for the Son. So these people dishonor him, and by doing so, they dishonor Yahweh himself. He'll judge those who refuse to honor Jesus. He will judge those who choose to dishonor Jesus. Because dishonoring Jesus is to dishonor the sovereign of the universe. And i got to tell you something. If you were about to go to court and you were facing execution, the last thing you want to do is insult the judge. It's the last thing you want to do. And there's comfort in this for the true disciple of Jesus. Our Father in heaven looks down and he cares deeply for us. He sees what we go through. He sees the rejection that we receive. He sees the hatred that we endure for his name. And one day his justice will prevail and we will be vindicated. 
It may not happen in time and space. It may not happen while you're on the earth, but it will happen. You and I will be vindicated. And that's why we can face hostility with calm and with patience, just as Jesus did. I don't need to get angry and lash back at people. I can entrust myself to the God who will judge all things in the proper time. That's an important lesson for us, especially as this world gets more hostile towards Christianity, right? It's happening, so be ready. All right, verse 51 is really the key verse for this morning. If you want to highlight it, underline it, this is the key statement that Jesus makes in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now that is a wild claim. Again, put yourself in the sandals of these Jews in the temple courts and you hear this rabbi from Nazareth say that. That is a wild claim. There is no middle ground with a claim like that. There's nothing fuzzy about it. Jesus, we've said it before, Jesus is one of two things here. He is either deluded, crazy, and a liar, or he's telling the truth and he's the son of God. Those are the only choices because nobody talks like that. If you believe in me, you'll never see death. Nobody human talks like that. By the way, it's not a new claim. I'll I'll give you this verse. He had said this back in chapter five in Jerusalem again, likely a different crowd, but he was clear. He said, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see him say this to, to Martha after Lazarus is raised from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, what does all that mean? And does it almost look contradictory when you, when you hear that? Think about this. All human beings die physically. Jesus never denies that, right? And yet some human beings will never see death. How do we reconcile those two statements? To the the untrained ear, that sounds contradictory, right? Obviously, the notion of life that Jesus refers to here is is not physical, but spiritual. It's the type of life that's found in God. It's, It's kingdom life, right? So even when we as believers die a physical earthly death, we as believers are in immediate possession of a different form of life, a far greater form of life, one that will last for all eternity, And and this is the biblical record. Starting in the very beginning, when you read your Bible, life and death, those words that we think we understand, don't primarily refer to existence or non-existence in this physical world. So we have to make sure we understand the definition. It's much more than that. Remember what God said to Adam when he warned him not to eat of the tree, right? What What did he say? In that day, if you eat of the fruit, you will what? You will surely die. Well, Adam ate the fruit. And he didn't go out of non-existence, right? Didn't go out of existence, that's what it is. Right? He didn't cease to live. In fact, he lived for hundreds of years more, didn't he? So what's going on there? The words life and death transcend the the visible physical boundaries of this world. This is why Paul can write to the Ephesians and refer to a time before they believed in Christ as a time that they were dead. But hold on, they're breathing, their bodies are working. But he says, you're dead in what? In your transgressions and sins. And of course, then he says that Christ took these dead people and made them alive. But you'd say, well, hold on a second. I saw them, they were physically alive. Paul says, no, they were dead and Christ made them alive. 
So the definitions, we got to sort of throw that up, right? And say, it doesn't mean what we often think it means. The implications of this are everything, right? In the first place, the one who trusts in Christ alone is, is saved. And, and by the way, we rarely ask the question, saved from what? We've gotten so used to using that evangelical word saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from judgment. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from what the scriptures describe as the second death. And that's an important phrase. Here's what Augustine wrote about it way back in the fourth century. He said, the death from which our Lord came to deliver us was the second death, eternal death, the death of hell, the death of damnation with the devil and his angels. This death of ours, speaking of believers, is only a migration. That's a great word. By that means, he just means passing, right? From earthly death immediately, instantaneously into eternal life. That's the hope that we have, right? That life goes on way beyond these earthly tents. Praise God for that because mine's fallen apart. I mean, you either agree with me or disagree, I don't know. You can go either way on that. All right, the language of verse 51, though, is really specific, and I love this picture. The believer will not see death, Jesus says. Now, theologians have often spoke about this in, in these terms, and I love this. How being born again and being assured of our salvation, get this now, turns our face away from death. It turns our face. In fact, Spurgeon spoke of this, and I love to quote Spurgeon. He says this, while I remain unforgiven, I cannot help gazing upon death and foreseeing it as my doom. That goes back to Hebrews 2, the, the slavery of the fear of death. I'm constantly looking at death as an unbeliever and saying, that's my doom. That's my destiny, right? And there's a fear there. But he says, but when the gospel of the Lord Jesus comes to my soul and I keep his word by faith, I'm turned completely around. My back is upon death and my face is toward life eternal. That changes the perspective on the world we're living in right now, even with COVID, right? We've looked at death as believers. We've evaluated it. We've seen why it happens because, because of sin, right? We've understood the victory that, that Christ won over death, and now we're able to turn our back to death because we understand it from God's perspective. We can turn our back to it. We can now look forward to the glory that awaits us in heaven. Death becomes, for the believer, a promotion to a much greater form of life. So why would we fear? To die is gain, Paul wrote. That's why he can say that. Die is, dying is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because to be with him is far better than in the turmoil of this world. So for us, the sting of death has been taken away. We're no longer anxious about dying. In a sense, death has died for us. Death has died for us. We've been freed from the power that it once held over us. Now, as I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand my words. I'm not saying that, that death in this world is easy to handle, because it's not. It can be heartbreaking, right? We know that we will all suffer because of these earthly tents that are breaking down. And we know that Christians aren't immune to things like cancer and heart disease and strokes. It's, Christians are not immune to deadly accidents, not even to COVID. I have a friend who, who passed away just a couple weeks ago who was a pastor. Uh, a young, uh, I say young man, he was 52, younger than me. Um, but he was a pastor of a church up near Sacramento. Um, 
really godly man, um, left a wife and three sons, heartbreaking. Really tough on that church. Imagine how tough on his wife and sons. So it can happen. And physical death is a serious thing. The, the loss of friends and family leaves gaping holes in our lives for many, many years. And it's what causes us to ask all the big why questions, right? Why do these things happen? And when we, we get to the whys, as believers, what do we do with it? We go back to the scripture. And we say, okay, it's okay to mourn. It's okay to feel all these things. It's hard. We can acknowledge that. But ultimately, I'm going to anchor myself in what scripture says about death. And what does it say? The wages of sin is death. And death comes to all of us because we all sin. We're appointed to die once, and then we face judgment before a God who is full of both holiness and justice, and we can trust that he will judge every person in perfect righteousness. So the takeaway is this. Today, repent of your sin and believe the gospel, right? I know that's, that's the message every week, right? Today, repent of your sin and trust in the gospel because of what Jesus has said. That the one who trusts in him will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in Christ will never die. Do you believe that? Now, before we finish up, go back to verse 51. Let me just show you what really amazes me here. Even after all these vile accusations that have been hurled at Jesus, did you notice he still offers hope to his enemies? You know when he says, you know, pray for your enemies? And we say, ah, we can't do that. He modeled it for us right here. These people are calling him the worst things you can imagine, yet he still holds out hope because there's both a warning and an invitation there in verse 51, right? The invitation's right there. Keep my word and you won't see death. Do it today. Trust in me. My arms are wide open. Believe and live. But the inverse is also true, isn't it? Reject my word. Keep making excuses. Dishonor me and my father, and you will die in your sins. You will. It reminds me of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30 before he departed from Israel. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. I've set it before you. Here's life and here's death. The blessing and the curse. And what does Moses say? Choose life. Choose life in order that you may live. It's what Jesus is all about, life and death, right? The stakes could not be higher in this, and the choices could not be more stark. So now, how are the Jews going to respond to the warning and to the invitation? All right, here's the hope, guys. Look, last shot. Keep my word and live. How are they going to respond? Oh, it's not pretty. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? That's not a good reaction. As usual, they misunderstand what he's saying, right? When Jesus said he will not see death, he was speaking spiritually of the second death. He's talking about death beyond the grave, but the Jews, once again, and we've seen it multiple times, they're only thinking physically. Last week we talked about it. They're able to hear, but they're not able to listen and understand what Jesus is saying. Their reasoning is this. Abraham died, all the prophets died, and they're the greatest Jews who've ever walked the earth. So how is it that this rabbi from Nazareth can promise those who follow him will not die? 
Are you greater than Abraham? They missed the point completely. If Jesus can promise men that they'll never die, he is claiming to be greater than all of them. Abraham, Moses, David, go down the list. All of the prophets. And so this is more than they can bear to hear because they can't listen and understand. Now they're sure that he's demon-possessed and they sneer at him with those famous words we've heard a million. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, has Jesus hesitated to tell them who he is? Not at all. He's told them over and over and over again. And it gets back to ability. We've talked about it. They're unable because they're not drawn to God. Because they're not born again. They cannot listen and understand. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Is Jesus greater than Abraham? Of course he is. He's literally God incarnate, the divine son. But look, at, look how he continues to be humble in verse 54. In the face of all of that, insult after insult, he's, Jesus answered, verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Or if I glorify myself, it means nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. How many times have we seen this? How many times have we seen this pattern? Jesus is completely secure in who he is and his purpose as the Son of God. And all that matters to him is the glory of his Father. If he insisted on glory for himself, if he were self-promoting, that would invalidate everything he had said. It was not about self-promotion. And what a great lesson for us, right? Even today in the church, if you seek to magnify yourself, I don't care what it is, in ministry, in your good works, in your use of the skills and the gifts that God has given you, if you seek to promote yourself, you are just a boastful, prideful person. And you invalidate everything that you think you stand for. You cancel it out. True honor, true honor comes not in self-promotion, but by allowing others to acknowledge what you've done. And even then, as we thank people for that encouragement, what do we do? We reflect that glory onto God because apart from him, we can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, final thoughts. Let me end by going back to where I started in the first place. How you view death and how you process living under the shadow of death has everything to do with your view of what is true about the meaning of this life. Everything. If you have no sure answer for why death happens, if you have no sure answer for what comes next as you pass from this life to the next, then you are going to be in slavery to fear and anxiety. That's what our world is going through right now. So listen again to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Do you believe that? Do you cling to that truth? Is that everything to you? To anybody who's here this morning who hasn't yet trusted in that word, to Jesus' word, learn from this story in John chapter 8. You cannot win a debate with Jesus. You won't win. And here's why. Because the truth about life and death are on his side. He knows it. He's seen it. He's eternal. <laughs> He's been in the presence of the Father. He has all the truth about what life is and what death is. You're not going to win that debate. Look at the devil as an example. The devil thought he was winning at this point in the story. He really thought he was winning as Jesus was being nailed to the cross. But even then, under the shadow of the greatest crime ever committed, God still won. 
And God used the children of the devil to accomplish his purpose. Folks, God is undefeated. He's undefeated. Don't argue with him. Just listen. So whether you challenge Jesus like the Jews here boldly and you reject him outright and you hurl insults and names at him or if you choose to simply quietly walk away and ignore him and move on to what you think are more more interesting pursuits, the result is the same. You've refused his invitation. You've refused his invitation and he will leave you to die in your sins and face judgment. So I would say with Moses, Say with Jesus, turn to him today, choose life, and live. Do it today. To my fellow believers, stop fearing death. Do not fear death. You've been set free from that slavery. So turn your face from it and look towards your eternal future. It's a good time to just take stock of the last two years or whatever it's been. Consider how you've responded to the pandemic. Consider how you're dealing right now with all the craziness in our world and be anxious for nothing because God is on his throne. He's never moved. He has never moved. If you profess to trust in God's sovereignty over your life, let this be a helpful test. Let his promises rule your heart in these challenging days. Keep looking for opportunities to to speak gospel truth into conversations with people who are and should be suffering fear and anxiety over what's going on. And finally, always remember that every good and satisfying moment of life in this world, and God blesses us with those things, right? We shouldn't forget that. It's not just about our eternal home, but we're blessed in so many ways, even in this physical life. Every single moment that you have that is satisfying in this world, every moment that you get to spend in fellowship with Christ while you're still in the body, every single moment that you get to share in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church, all of it, and every satisfaction that you receive when you serve the kingdom, and every sweet moment of thankfulness and gratitude that you have for God's long-suffering nature and his kindness to you, remember all of it is just a foretaste of so much more to come. Enjoy it down here, but know that there is something even far greater to come. It gets even better. It gets even more glorious and for all eternity. Never forget that. So may we continue to praise Jesus today and forevermore for his victory over death. Amen? Let's praise him in prayer. Lord, it's, it's not a surprise to you that this world is in turmoil over so many things happening right now, but not the least of which is this pandemic and, and death and anxiety are all around us today, Lord. I just, I pray for us that while we take it seriously, while we make wise choices, while we, we don't mock people or call it a hoax or anything like that, Lord, I pray though that we will be centered in our understanding of what's really going on that we will be centered in biblical truth, rooted deeply there, knowing that you are on your throne, knowing that we can trust you completely, and knowing that death for us is nothing more than a promotion to glory. Lord, help us to turn our back to the fear and help us to embrace what lies ahead. And while you give us time on this earth, and whatever years you sovereignly deemed to give us, Lord. May we continue to praise your name 
May we continue to speak your greatness into the world in every little conversation. Help us to do that well. For your glory, amen.